Welcome back to Absurdity. I am joined by my lovely co-host, the ever-so-sharp Henry Johnson. Is this really now the new thing? It is. I don't, I'm going to introduce you every single time. Every single time. Which, by the way, actually, someone reached out to me uh, because they hadn't heard the episode A Beautiful Absurdity. Uh, and so they hadn't heard that episode and they did not, they were not aware that Henry is now the co-host of this show. Uh, but if you couldn't tell by the new podcast artwork or by the fact that Henry's been on the last several episodes, uh, Henry is the new co-host for Absurdity. Uh, he was co-hosting with me on A Beautiful Faith. And due to some life changes happening and for a more manageable schedule for everyone, uh, it and for us to be able to produce higher quality content for you, we decided to sort of end a beautiful faith. Not really, um, but we are. Uh, you can still find the podcast and all the episodes we did there. But we've merged the two into absurdity, and um, now we're just doing the same kind of conversations. A little, a little less, you know, uh, directly faith focused sometimes, but the same kind of conversations, the same kind of content that we were always doing. Um, and now we just do them under the banner of absurdity. So still the content that everyone is used to, don't worry. But Henry is um, is a really good friend of mine, someone who um, I love dearly and cherish dearly. And, um, you know, may he rest in peace because I sound like I'm ta- giving a eulogy. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm, I'm president for my own funeral now. Yeah, this is great. Um, but no, so and that's who we Henry just wanted is. to announce to you that the new new co-host is... Yes. Yeah. Um, there will be refreshments uh, in the lobby afterward. Um, no, so yeah, that's that's what's happened here. Uh, for anyone who wasn't caught up to speed, now you are. Um, so Henry, we were we were just talking before we we hit record about going analog and uh, you know trying to trying to minimize screen time and minimize how much you know I, as someone with ADHD who also spends all day looking at screens. I recently have really rediscovered the importance of taking notes. Um, now I'm I'm struggling with the idea of I had a bunch of sticky notepads and I had a, like a, a bigger sticky notepad that was kind of like letter sized, and then I just started within a week I just started seeing sticky notes everywhere that I was wasting paper, um, and I was losing like track of which paper had what information on it. And so instead of going this route of like getting a million different color stickies and color coding what I write on each one and, you know, instead of going down that road, I instead have re refound my love, rediscovered my love for moleskin journals. Um, and so I picked up a few. I, I've been using That's one for years. I've been using one moleskin for years uh, to take all our notes for podcasting. And so I've still, I do that. I, I actually filled that. Uh, it was a blue notebook I had and... Finally filled that up, so I got I got some new I got a set of three new ones that I I now use for this, and uh, I take all my I take all like you know when we need a timestamp, edit out a cough or a sneeze or you know a microphone bump or something, I take notes by hand. I've always done it because I don't have to worry about editing out the the typing of my keyboard while I'm typing out the timestamp of another part to remove. Um, as it happens, it <laughs> it just speeds up the editing process this way, but. Yeah, I love. I'm I'm really rediscovering my love of pens, of note taking, of uh, the whole nine yards. It's really great. Yeah, you want to talk about this spy pen you were showing me earlier for note taking? Yes. Um, I mean, it's not called a spy pen, but it almost sounds like that stuff from the '70s yeah. you'd see in like the CIA museum or whatever. So um, I have to thank my girlfriend Natabelle for for showing me these originally because she got me one. I didn't realize what it was at first. It was just an erasable pen, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." 
And then I saw a video the other night on mind mapping, which is an, a way of kind of uh, mapping out a project. You start with, um, think of it like a, not like a family tree and that it goes down, but like a, like literally like a mind map that, that expands out from one bubble, that central bubble being the, you know, the project and then the, the main branches of it outside and then each task Anyway, he uses the the guy that that was talking about mind mapping. I'll actually find the video and link it in the episode description if anyone's curious. It's a method of project management and planning. And he used uh, these what they're called friction ball uh, friction ball clicker erasable pens, and they come in 0.7 millimeter and 0.5 millimeter, and they're um, they're a gel pen but they're completely erasable and there's a like a little nub on the back that erases it and the the reason it's friction is because th- what erases it is heat which also means that like if you leave a notebook or notes in your car on a hot day you know it's going to actually the ink may disappear and what's cool is this is why I called it a spy pen uh, all you have to do is stick it back in your freezer for like 10 seconds or so or like a minute and all of a sudden the ink is back if if it hasn't like by friction been erased and so the, the ink has been moved around, um, which is really, really cool. And so I think these pens are awesome. They apparently do dry out pretty quickly, like you run out of ink pretty quickly, but I'm I'm willing to take that that risk. They're refillable. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I, these are really cool pens. This is my first time actually using, using one for the, for, as I take notes on you know, as we talk together today, but, but yeah, no, I, I, I can't recommend them more. I think they're really, really cool. So that is his move into analog. And what we were talking about briefly before is I'm rediscovering a love for a typewriter. For those of you who don't know what that was, that was like, which by the way, even if you're like, wait, one of those old things, if you've ever wondered why the keyboard on your computer looks the way it does, for the most part, it's because of typewriters. If you've ever wondered, like, why is the G and the H and the F and the J and the D and the K and the S and the L and the A, like, why, who came up with mixing the alphabet this way? Believe it or not, there is no modern reason why it should be this way. There is absolutely none. This was the, this comes from old analog typewriters where you had little metal armatures. It's a very mechanical system that had to throw letters up onto the page through an ink strip to make it go. And when you're trying to compress all the letters of this, these metal arms into a, a confined space, they can almost get stuck on one another or overlap or hit. And so they had to design a keyboard where the most frequently used letters, they thought, and in combination, it's crazy. They had to like use a ton of science and figure out, okay, how much in the English language does these letters get used and in what frequency? And they had to design a keyboard where the arms wouldn't overlap each other or get stuck when you're trying to type on a keyboard. And so the keys were arranged the way they were, and we've just kept it ever since. So there's absolutely Mm. no reason for it to stay this way now, except that we've just been doing it forever. Yeah. But anyway, that side... So you're telling me me that a quirky person came up with the QWERTY keyboard. Ah, ah. Ah, I think I outdid you. I think I I really hurt you with that one. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> if anyone has come from, we, from our OG, if they, a beautiful if they understood days, what we just did there. That was role reversal at its finest. <laughs> I, yes, I finally got him. I finally hit him with a pun that bothered him so much that he embraced my way of responding, which is, I hate you. I, I don't know if it bothered me that bad. I just saw what was happening and you teed it up and I could not take a swing at it. I appreciate so, I, I appreciate you uh, indulging me very much. Anyway, so that, that was, I, I've said enough about typewriters, but I, I've really been enjoying getting back into typewriting on 
the typewriter from 1919 that my great grandfather bought my great grandmother because she was a stenographer mm. at the age. And it even they even found the desk that he bought at the time with it. I've kind of inherited this and had to get it repaired. But I mean, they made these crazy desks too. I mean, these these are really neat. Where can you imagine you got a desk and a typewriter takes up a lot of space, especially in 1919. They're kind of big devices. They're not as small as they got in the you know later 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, obviously. And if you leave it on the desk, you don't have as much use of the desk. So they invented this weird desk shelf thing where you bolt the typewriter into this shelf and it comes up and you can type. And when you don't need it anymore, it literally turns it like a 75 degree angle or 90 degree angle, whatever, and folds back into the desk and a lid comes back and you have the whole surface of the desk back. It's, I'm not explaining it really well, but it's, it's really weird. Think of it like, like a, think the, of it like, like you're, you're hiding away. Uh, can't can't let the the secret police come get you and you know find you typing and so you have this table that folds in and it just hides the just except hides the keyboard unlike up. your spy pen it's quite obvious that there's something in that desk because there's this nice big square cutout you know where people are like <laughs> oh I wonder why this part of the desk has this cut in it fair enough and you and you just lift it but it it's been really cool so I've been enjoying the tactile physical experience of of typing and there is something strangely still. And and I remember I've typed on a typewriter before when I was a kid because my grandmother had it. Obviously, my great grandmother had this one, but but so I, I remember that they weren't fully phased out by the eighties and nineties. You know, your older family members would still have them around, and they were always fun to just play with. But there is still something I've been falling in love with it again. Strangely satisfying of when the roller bar, the thing that moves the paper, goes all the way to the end of its track and goes ting. Yeah like a cooking timer and you have to and push it back. There's something strangely still satisfying about the ping as yep. it, as it goes. So anyway, well, that's, and, that's our going speaking into of, I was going to say, speaking of things that uh, haven't been phased out, uh, denominations are still a thing. And oh, mercy. And talking about strange satisfaction, can we get, sound like Mick <laughs> Jagger can't get no satisfaction. Um, how, how do we find this transition's crazy? How do we find an ability to get back on track? Well done. And ah, thank you. I, I knew it was still there somewhere. I had to reclaim my mojo for me. Well done. Anyway, I'm impressed. But, yes. What we're wanting to talk about today is how do we cooperate across denominational lines. And by that, we're not talking about ecumenicism in the sense of how do the churches just start doing everything together or come to an agreement theologically on everything. That, that's not where the angle we're taking. We're talking about how, as followers of God, believing in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but also recognizing that there are countless denominations and multiple churches on the same street, and et cetera, how or is there a way for us to cooperate for the kingdom of God to achieve things in society and in life while still maintaining our uniqueness? You know, so not ecumenicism where we have to eliminate our uniqueness. Is it ecumenicism, ecumenicism, or just ecumenism? I, 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 I think, feel like it's ecumenism. Uh, yeah, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Or ecumenicism. I, I think it's either or. Ecumenicism, yeah, it's... Whichever it, it, you know, everyone my, knows what we're talking about. You know what we're talking about, but obviously there's a difference in how to pronounce it. So, like that, how do we cooperate in this conversation 
if we have a theologically different understanding of how to pronounce it or just I'm lazy and I didn't remember how to pronounce it correctly. Well, that's that's was, what we're talking about. How yeah. can we do things together across denominational lines without necessarily eliminating our uniqueness or having to merge our theologies, et cetera? But how do we get along in an age where can we get along, right? And are there things we should, could, would do together or not? That's kind of our free-for-all yeah. topic on working across denominational lines. So my my question is, I mean, what what do you see as the difference between ecumenicism, ecumenism, you you know, whatever whatever persuasion you you have there and and you potato know, potato uh uniting in you know cooperation for you know initiatives for you know working alongside one another for common goals and and finding you know any sort of common ground what where where do you see the difference i mean the i in te- on a technical term i'd have to look it back up i don't think there's actually a ton of difference i think that's an umbrella term for cooperation from churches it's just taken on at least in certain circles that we, you know, interact with, maybe within our own denominational persuasion or whatever, that that term has taken on more of a we're fusing theology, not just cooperating. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Projects. That's that's so, what I thought. That's where I thought you were, but I wanted clarification too. Yeah, I, um, I think the technical yes, term is just the cooperation between different faiths or different denominational communities. And that can include on theological discovery, or it can include projects or politics or whatever. That the general term is that. So I guess a, a good working definition, as we usually do on this show, would be we're we're not talking about. And if you want to use that term, fine. But we, we're not talking about it in the traditional. Your theologies have to merge, or your organizations start merging in certain ways. We're just talking about cooperation assuming that the churches will still maintain independent thought on theology mm-hmm. and without, or it's cooperation practice. it's cooperation uh without sacrificing unique identity and Correct. identifying so how, how can yep. we cooperate maintaining our uniqueness or should we or is that even possible yeah. that's that's where we're going so cooperation through through un- uniqueness not uniformity that yeah. would probably be a good way to put it well and i think i, I I, I think we're this is this is a hard conversation, not because I think the topic is really heavy or anything, but I think I think everyone is starting on the back foot almost. If if you grew up in the church, I think if you didn't grow up in the church, this is actually a lot easier to do. Um, but if you did grow up in the church, it's actually a little bit harder. And in by the way, the church being any denomination, really, um, though there are some that do this better than others, there is a kind of across the board in my experience anyway, maybe I'm projecting, an internal culture that is built on other denominations, like the the uh, the belief that other denominations are wrong, like they have it wrong. And like a lot of denominations and a lot of teachings within churches are based on, well, those people there have it wrong. We have it right. We need to convince those people to come be our people um, so that they can also be right. Yeah, and, and I can kind of see where that would begin because obviously from a growth perspective, if you offer nothing unique, why should anyone be with you? It's kind of a product-based sales pitch, right? Yeah. If, if they have exactly what I have, then why would you come to me? And especially why would you come to me if they're a larger church or they have more money or they do better programs and we're the little puny, you know, 10 people mm-hmm. church on the corner? Why? Well, the easiest way to say is, well, because they're wrong. You know. Yeah. Well, and that's I, I I think that's the that's the thing t- 
too is yes, it is a, a sales pitch essentially, but but I think this this all always pits a piss us against each other because the within Christianity the consequences of being wrong are played up as this you know a very very big deal and you know a, it gets with you eternal, in hot fire correct uh, <laughs> nice well done the you know they they really do put you in a tough bind if 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 you believe you're wrong or do something that you know is wrong, whatever. And so there's this hesitation and constant fear of like, well, we can't talk to them. We can't, unless we're talking with them with the express purpose of getting them to our side, we can't work with them. We can't talk with them. We can't do anything with them. And this is tragic. Or I might opinion. be deceived. Correct. Exactly. They, they might, might, they might do it in reverse. I hang around with them. I get, you know, it, it's, it's almost, and I, I don't mean this against the, the Ammon or Menon communities, it's almost like this idea of the the Amish, even like you know, if you go outside yeah. the community, there's danger there. If they suck you out of the community, then you're gonna. Well, it's not gonna end well. Luckily, you don't have to worry about the Amish hearing this. Well, you say that, but you never know because they I do know, get at least it. one year, one year out, and they also, again, having had a, a a friend that came out of the Amish community, they do ride in cars. They have people drive them places. So if somebody's listening, if you are a person listening to our podcast who happens to pick up Amish from some community to drive them somewhere for any reason, why don't you just put this podcast on for a brief second just to prove a point to Ryan? <laughs> right? That's fine. Let, yeah. let, let That's them fine. hear and they go, who in the world are those people? And then people? let them oh. dictate their, their one-star review to us. Um, <laughs> on a typewriter. <laughs> yes, on a typewriter. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. You've come full circle and then erase it with your erasable pen. So I, okay. So I agree My with you. My apologies to any Amish that are listening. I, and I, and, and this extends to me into a place of like, I really find it tragic and, and, and really sad to me that essentially we're trained to, to believe that if someone isn't and trained, not intentionally trained, no one read into that, that, that Conditioned might be the yeah, better term. Conditioned is a better word. No one read it. We're not like boot camping this necessarily. I think some people are, but but Although I Although don't I get me started that. that there's a there's a group in our denomination that yes, has like I'm Bible aware. boot yep. camp and stuff and I yeah. army Bible camps yep. and stuff. And if you're one of those that know what we're talking about and you like it, okay, that's good for you. Um also I there are have, other podcasts to have, listen to. <laughs> wow. No, that's not what I was saying. Please stay with us. I'm just going to let you know I have my reservations about maybe that would be another podcast discussion yes, for another time. But, but but yeah, that's fine. I What I'm saying is the problem is that we see anyone outside of our church. If we haven't seen them in our church, we assume that they don't believe what we believe or that they're lost until they hear what we have to say. We start so many interactions from that standpoint. Instead of actually getting to know someone, we start with the aspect of the only reason I'm getting to know you is to tell you about Jesus, not because I actually care about you as a person. And if I did care about you as a person, I probably would have talked to you for long enough to identify, you know, whether or not you already believe in him anyway. Um, and, and it's tragic. But you can't believe in him if you don't believe in him the same way I do. Correct. And and what's tragic with this is it ends up actually perpetuating stereotypes because all we do is go outside and and... And, you know, look around and keep our eyes peeled for someone who just looks like they need Jesus. And that's always, that always ends up being, you know, the same kind of, the same kind of groups. I remember reading on Twitter a while back, a story of a, of an LGBTQ plus individual who was walking down the street, um, very dressed, dressed very much in a gay pride sort of way, you know, very, very flashy way as well. And, 
this group of Christians came up to him and said, Hey, uh, can we pray with you? And, and then he asked, I mean, he, he came from a Christian background. So he was, he was actually trying to be a little understanding and patient with this group of teenagers, um, and like a youth leader or something like that. And so he said, sure, but can I ask why you want to pray with me specifically? And they said, well, we're just going out, you know, looking for people who, who look like they need Jesus and, and praying for them. And he was just like, you don't know anything about <laughs> who me. look like they need. Yeah. yeah. You don't know anything about me. Why? What? Like whether or not you're right, like you assumed that and you assumed so much about my story and my life just because you saw me on the street and, and assumed uh, based on my look that I quote needed Jesus. And their prayer was just as, just as bad. Um, is, is I, I've been trying to find that Twitter thread for a while on off and on, and I haven't been able to find it again, but it was just a really poignant reminder to me, uh, of, of that fact that we see everyone outside as, as an other that's in need of us and what we have. And it is, that causes a lot of these lines to be drawn between denominations because if they don't have what I have, then they're lost. So that means working with other denominations means that I might be promoting a dangerous theology. I might be promoting something that that I can't support or that I believe is is harmful. Um, and I can't ever, you know, show that that uh, I might be approving of that. I can't ever let my members know that it, that that's okay. And it's tragic, but that's what stops a lot of people working together, a lot of denominations working together. Fear. Yep. Well, and I would say, and I sh- and I and I think I should be clear. I don't. I don't know that it's necessarily denominations. I I think when I talk about this, when I say denominations working together, I really do mean like local churches in a city. I don't necessarily mean that like the, the Southern Baptist Convention there. is joining with the United Methodist Church and they're going to do this big joint initiative. I'm talking specifically like local churches or, you know, clusters of local churches working together. Yeah, because because most of the time, let's be honest, local churches are operating rather independently. There's denominational coherence only in a theological sense, but most of them are are not working in monolithic groups. Now, true, there yep. are some denominations that are more, quote, top-heavy than others or are more centralized and work from central groupings as others. I can think like the Roman Catholic communion, think things like that, that, you know, Oh, well, I mean, even the Methodist, you brought up the United Methodist church. They, they are much more denominationally structured. Yes. Uh, PC USA, which is Presbyterian church, you know, USA, one of four groups, I think now it's hard to keep track because they keep splitting, but uh, of course they're not the only ones. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, mm-hmm. Well, so, and so yeah, we have that in our churches. own. We have that in our own just denomination in the Seventh Day Adventist Church because we have regional and state conferences, and regional conferences um, are basically black conferences, and um, that were formed in the '40s and '50s, and have actually seen more growth, more tithe return, you know, better financially, uh, better financial positions than than a lot of state conferences to this day. Uh, since their formation, but you have, you know, I, I can think of instances even growing up where I, I've seen a regional conference church across the street from a state conference church, and um, they never work together. They've never even so much as talked to one another. And the only time that those, that, that like, there's any sort of interaction between the two is if, you know, if 
parents from both of those churches send their children to an advent to you know the local advent so constituent school or whatever they yeah. call it. So it's yeah. It, well, you know, and there's another fear. I don't think that's just. I think that's just us. There's a lot of churches within deno- the same denomination that won't comp- you know cooperate because they view themselves as in competition with one another. Yep. If we if we cooperate, our members might just go over there at eleven o'clock on a Saturday or a Sunday instead of. 11 o'clock over yep. here. And, we see it like you know, Walmart and Target never joining forces for something, right? Like it's, you don't yeah. join with your competitors, especially when you have a bottom line financially to meet. I mean, at, at some level, running a church is running a nonprofit organization that has a budget that need, like it is a business to some degree and nonprofits are businesses. They just are not done they with use the primary. They for something else. Yeah. Correct. Their primary purpose is not, is not profit. Uh, and is not just as much profit or, you know, getting more and more and more, um, though that tends to be although there a very, are, very say, big Although motivator. there is some question about goodwill. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> Groups like that. But I, I just think that there is a, um, I think that, that that culture is very, that that is what makes this conversation so difficult because, I mean, how do you even begin to tear that up, you know, to tear that down. How do you begin to even chip away at that? Um, and so I think I, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should start with why it's even important to work together. It, you know, do we even believe it's important to work together? I don't, I don't really know where to, where that jump off point should be, but I, that, that's a, that's a pretty huge wall to me, um, to, to, to climb or to tear down. I, I mean, if we just go with the first question, is it important that we work together? The probably honest answer is it depends. And maybe, it, well, actually, let me back it up. Let's just do general and then go specific. Is it important that we work together? Yes. Is it important that we work together, insert whatever the situation or topic is? That's a maybe. And what I mean by that, the big mm-hmm. picture from a Christian perspective, Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another, right? And we do believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, at least I hope. Now, there might be some listening, they're like, no, you know, there's, yeah. everyone claims the same Lord, but it's different. And and, I, and I'm just talking about in Christianity. I don't even want to get into the debates. They're like, yeah, Allah in, yeah, with yeah, Muslims yeah, yeah. is really Satan or something stupid. I, I'm not even going there. I'm just talking about even within Christian denominations, there are some Yep, and I'm looking at you, some of our fellow Adventists, uh, who think that hey, you know, because they don't understand theology this way, or they worship on a different day. That's not the same God. Uh, okay, well, anyway, that aside, and assuming we don't have to have that argument, you know, we're all in the same family. There should be a certain way where we are able to cooperate, care for one another, you know, interact with one another in safe, healthy you know, ways that should be modeled to the non-Christian, to use that term kind of negatively, the non-Christian world around us. Yeah. So in that sense, I think it is important because if you have a bunch of people that, especially nowadays in our polarized societies, more polarized, they've always been polarized, but more so, if people that all claim to believe in the same God and are supposedly in the same book that they're basing it off of can't operate in a kind, genuine way, then what good is that as a, you know, as a model to replicate for everybody that doesn't believe the way we do. So, so I think in that sense, the world does need to see us be able to cooperate, does need to see us be able to get along 
to treat each other with respect and care. And, and, and even when we have to agree to disagree, whether that's theologically or on mission or something else. Yeah. So in that sense, yes, I think it is vital that we work together. On a more nuanced level, I don't necessarily think it's vital that we do that depending on what the initiative, it is, yeah. Or the initiative or the situation or or or, or whatnot. I, I like to say, like you said, because most of this is going to happen on local levels. I'm not talking denominationally. I'm talking about you guys are in a city, something happens in your city or your town. There's some need maybe or some crisis or whatever that's happened and all the churches in the community try and figure out what are we supposed to do about it. And there may be situations where the church is coming together on that would be beneficial for the community and the cause of Christ. There may be other op- times where that will be more harm than good. And, yeah. and that really, I guess I should say, as I'm thinking out loud, this is probably the best way to say it. Is it vital that we work together or not on any particular thing? I think the answer is directly related to this question. Will this thing advance the kingdom of God or will it advance a denominational kingdom? Mm. I think that would be the question I'd have to ask myself in my head. Is whatever I'm thinking about cooperating with another church on, is it advancing the kingdom of God or is it advancing a denominational kingdom? Yeah. And that can be yours or the other. So in other words, to give an illustration, if let's say you're in a city and some horrible tragedy happens to a neighborhood, like a tornado comes and wipes through, this happens in the South, you know, wipes through 40, 50 homes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now all these people are homeless and there's some sort of big issue. And so a whole bunch of churches in the area, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Adventist, Pentecostal, Catholic, whatever, they all get together and they go, man, we need to pull all of our community service teams together and go put these people, shelter these people and help them clean up their homes and, and get the community to make sure they have food and access to clean water and whatever. And, you know, our one little church can't do this by ourselves, whatever church is suggesting this. Why don't we all cooperate? You know, I, I you know, and so the extent of the cooperation is we want to really get these people closed, sheltered, their lives back together or whatever. I think just in that very not nuanced term, that would advance the kingdom of God. We're showing that God cares about the daily details of people's lives. We care about people's safety. We care about their families. Uh, I would say, yeah, that's a go cooperate, go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Let's let all the churches come together and, and do whatever. If it's on as a flip side, just making these analogies up as I go, if it is something like there's the one church in the area that's like, hey, we're going to do a revival series and slash food bank thing. So it sounds kind of good. Uh, run here at our facility. And so we're going to give them food and all that. But at the end of the day, they're going to hear this nightly appeal message from our evangelist to do whatever and all of that cooperate with us. Is there all sorts of other groups that like to come in and, and help participate with this food bank slash revival series? Okay. Food bank things kind of cool that, I mean, feeding people advances the kingdom of God. I think the idea that specifically everyone's cooperating so that their particular evangelist can be like, join this church or this way of thinking about God specifically, that might be one where I'd be a little more hesitant. Cause I say, I think the denominational kingdom building is mm-hmm. going to outweigh the general kingdom building, if this is making sense. 
Yeah. Again, these analogies I just came up with right now, so they they no, I, may not be the most efficient, but I agree with you. I think I think at the core of it, I I love the way that you talked about this because I do think it's important that 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 Christians uh, and denominations work together and and are and it's important that we we find ways to do that, but not everything, you know, we really need to. And I love the 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 kind of clarifying question that can that can help identify whether or not an an initiative is worth pairing on. But uh, you know, partnering on, but I think at the core of it, and and I've talked about this within our just our denomination, but I do think that we have within Christianity itself, we have a major branding problem, and the way it, if most people think of branding and and what branding is as just the logo and name, they think about the colors, they think about you know color palette, they think about a website, they think about the visual ways that that someone experiences a brand. But a brand is so much more than that, like so much more than that. And I don't, I'm not going to get into all of it, but what I will say is this. But you could sign up on Patreon and for at the $30 level, you get will coaching, get at least yes. one hour um, a, 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 month a month coaching with Ryan to talk through all of, all of this. Yes. So when, when we, when we talk about, um, when I talk about a branding problem, there is, I think his name is Marty. I need to remember. I need to look up his last name when I'm done talking here. But um, the way that he describes, he's a marketing guru, genius marketing guy. Um, when he talks about branding, if you ask him, what's your definition of a brand? He he doesn't say it's your mission statement. He doesn't say it's your value statement or your core values. It's not your, it's not even your product. Your brand is whatever some you know whatever people's opinions and view of you as a brand are that's your brand so you may think that your brand is your product and or you know it, it, that your product is your brand you may think that your shoes are amazing that you're selling these high quality shoes to people for a really you know great price but if every single person in the world thinks that your shoes are terrible shoes and not worth the price then your brand is selling overpriced crappy shoes. Whether you like it or not, whether you had a, you know, whether that was an intentional marketing decision you made or not, your brand is now what people see you as. This is why a lot of companies will just, like when they get caught in a scandal like Exxon, uh, they'll just, or uh, or what, was it Experian that had the credit leak a few years ago? I feel like it was Experian. Um, Experian did. Yeah, but Experian was a was a different company. Was named a different company prior to becoming Experian because they had something similar happen before, and all they did was pack up shop on that brand and restarted under a new brand name because now people didn't associate, you know, the the credit leaks and 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 that damage done with with Experian, and that's the now, kind of, course, of Exxon never relabeled, and we still remember the Exxon Valdez. But yes, I get correct. But there are there are companies that do in the case in 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 the cases of tragedy and in the case of like something really bad happening with their brand. But that's the reality is that a brand is the way that people see you. And right now, I, I, last episode we talked about Christian nationalism, and I think one of the biggest cures for for Christian nationalism um, right now that's the thing that everyone is seeing. Right now, if you look up in the media and you see Christians, you know, you look up Christianity or Christians, you're probably going to find stories that are related to people, you know, holding this this ultra right wing conservative, um, you know, Christian nationalist beliefs. And this is the picture of Christianity. And this is why people are are this is why people so viscerally react and go so far the other direction. And the cure to that is 
this kind of this very this they will know they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another and by your love for them and that's why it's so important on a macro level for us to find ways intentional ways to unite to partner you know to further the kingdom of god because there has to be someone writing a counter narrative to all the crap that's being spewed because the brand that christianity has right now is not the brand that it wants to have and unless we do nothing about it, in which case then we're okay with it. And so that's, I could not agree with you more. I, I second all of that um, because I do think that we, we need to do something um, to curb some of this. So yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So, so what do we, I, yeah, I guess, how do we, how do we even begin that process? You know, what's the, what's the risk where, yeah. What, what do those steps actually look like then? Well, I mean, since I'm not the only one talking, but I, I'd say just throw it out there. I think one of the risks is is that you do end up doing more of a denominational kingdom building than a kingdom of God building. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really easy for that to happen, and that happens a lot. So, I mean, that that would be an inherent risk. Yeah, um, and especially if you've not done any of the pre work with your own, you know, with your own church, you know, local church community uh, to actually engage them on. I think a lot of us need to be retrained on how to actually interact with one another. Like we need to, like we need to agree. That sounds really bad, but it's just the truth. I think a lot of us need to actually relearn how to, how to just be a good human being. And the, and around people you disagree with, around people you disagree with. Exactly. And people that you may believe are wrong. Um, because there's a time and a place. And when you're partnering on a project to further the kingdom of God, that's not the time or the place to do so, but there's a lot of members that would take that. In fact, the most disgusting way I see this happen, and I know this because it came back on me for it. Uh, it, it came back to me for it. Um, a um, someone passed away, ha- asked to uh, do the funeral. Um, their 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 children, an old person passed away. Their children asked to do the funeral in in the church that I was pastoring, and. Um, because that was where their parent, you know, where their father was, uh, was a beloved member. And, and that was really important to him. And so all of a sudden my church members are like, Oh man, what a great evangelistic opportunity during this, this, this memorial service. Oh, I hate this. This, this is the most happens. Yep. Yep. And it happens in multiple denominations because so many pastors get on that stage and start talking about their own beliefs about where people go when they die. They start talking about their own beliefs about, and they do it not because or they not actually- not just when they die. They, they do it because they think this is their last chance to keep them from hell. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like, like there is, they see that not as a way to comfort the actual family that's going through this, not to celebrate the life of the person that they're actually there to celebrate the life of or mourn the passing of, but rather they're doing it for they're they're there specifically with the intent to get more members. They see it as a sales pitch. It, it, it's a bait and switch because they go, well, these people would never voluntarily set foot in our buildings, but they'll come for this person. So I'm going to use the death of this individual to now give them the gospel presentation mm-hmm. that they won't hear on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Yep. And when in reality, they should know that you are Christians by your love, which means that even I get it. It's going to cross your mind. I wonder if by treating them well enough, you know, they may, you know, I wonder if by doing this, you know, maybe, maybe they will come. That thought crosses your mind and, and sometimes you don't have control over it. Like it just, I'm not saying that, 
but that shouldn't be your core motivation for why you're ever going down that path to begin with. And yeah, what, how you get something out of it is selfishness. That's not the correct. Gospel. The way that you treat them will do far more for your message than, um, than actually than actually outright declaring your message. But outside of that, you should just be good and kind and loving to them because that's what being a good human being is. That's what living in the human experience should be. And that's where... Yeah. Yeah. I I was just going to say a a side story to that from an actual funeral that's coming back in my mind, if you want a real-life story about this, that proves all what you just said. There was a funeral I had in the first church I ever pastored. And it was in the center of the state of South Carolina, pretty close to it, one of the communities there. And it was like in an August. So I had a, a member that d- passed away, and they were a member of you know, my church, but their spouse was not, right? So mm-hmm. they were part of, a, of another church. And when he died, that the spouse came to me and was like, I would like my minister to do a part of this service and you as well, you know my spouse's minister to to do a part and and I said that's fine whatever well they they didn't want it at either church cuz they didn't want it to turn into that so it was going to be in the a graveside and then a little chapel at the at the cemetery mm. well it was august in south carolina it was 117 that afternoon Okay, so just to set the stage. That sounds terrible. And there was a little, it, this was the worst. Ever. I thought I was going to do about nine other funerals while I was at the funeral because it was that bad. I'm setting the stage for how ridiculous this yes. looks because yep. I think it's just symbolic of what we're saying. There was a little chapel right across the street from where the plot was going to be, and it probably could have held only about 60 people. Well, the AC in it broke. It was that hot. It broke. And then was like leaking water out of it because it had frozen the coils or whatever. If you've seen, because they they had it was a chapel with those little like wall units in it. And mm-hmm. so everyone's in this little chapel crammed in. It's 117 out. The AC has died. Water's leaking everywhere. And that's the state of it before the service started. Okay, so just uh, this imagine is, this, this is amazing. This is a perfect storm. Uh, it, it is, but I think it, humorously, that's what's going through my mind as we're having this discussion. And so it was time to get up to do the funeral. And all I can think is, I'm going to have, you know, a lot of elderly are there. And I said, I'm going to have like nine of these people fall into the grave while we're putting the casket down in it. And I'm going to have to do nine other funerals. I need to short, I'm like shortening notes. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to speak very long at all because I'm in a black suit sweating to death, you know, and I haven't stepped out in the sun yet. I was like, I like this is going to be a disaster. Well, the other preacher was going to go first. Okay, he was going to give like a welcome slash quick, the operative word is supposed to be quick, devotional thought, and then I was supposed to do like the eulogy slash comfort the family thing, and then we were we were going to be done. The guy, who will remain nameless, and what church he was from remain nameless, spoke for an hour and ten minutes. And he was preaching people into heaven, I think was his attempt. He was giving the full gospel. I mean, and he was going all over the place. Like he, I don't know, maybe he had a bad day, whatever. I like, I don't know if he had notes. They were, it was scatterbrained. At one point he was talking about even Hitler could be saved from hell. And I was like, what in the world does this have to do with 
I mean, it was, people were like going to pass out. Everyone, it was obvious when the crowd's just like shifting all the time and, and coughing and like, you know, they, he just wouldn't stop. And he finally did his appeal prayer or whatever, and then sat down. And I am drenched in sweat. It's pouring off my face. Everybody's in there miserable. And I just remember going, uh, and, and I think I stood up afterwards and I quickly was like, well, thank you for that. And I was like, you know, I, I think we're all here. I, I kept my comments to like five minutes. I, I cut all the rest of my stuff. I was just basically like, here's what it is. They had a great life. We're going to miss them. We're going to love them. God's got you. God's got him, whatever. Let's pray. Mm. And and we went out and I even I was supposed to lead the graveside and I shortened that to like five minutes. I was like, we're done. We're, we're just done. I don't remember 100% what I even said theologically or what that's not even the point. I, to this day, run into people that apparently were there. I didn't even know they were there. And they thank me repeatedly and say, mine was the best funeral service, you know, talk they'd ever seen and i was like i think it's only because they were in hell and they <laughs> got him out of it so you're saying you preached to them you he may have tried to preach them into I heaven but you preached to them out of hell right well i mean and, and this is a goofy story and you're like where was he going with this i i, I think part of this like you said your actions are going to speak louder than your words yeah your what is the intent of what you're trying to accomplish right knowing and and a branding problem. And that that story just encapsulates to me everything we just said is about how horrible we normally do it. Our branding issues are not taking into consideration other people. And people at the end remembered that I was short, not anything I said. That I was mercifully short. So are there my here's my question. Um are there any deal breakers? Do we have anything that would other than 117 like, degree heat? Yeah, no, no, I know. But like what I mean is you know, do we partner with the Westboro Baptist Church? Do we partner with... Uh, I would not personally partner with the Westboro Baptist Church. No, I mean, I agree. Because I, of the branding issue. Yes. But that, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, like, so what? what is the, you know, what are the deal breakers for whether or not, not even just the one question to determine whether or not it's kingdom-driven or denomination-driven, but is there an actual identifier within denominations that you would say like, okay... You know, this is an exception, and we're not—we're just not going to touch this one. Um, do you think there are those? I mean, obviously, I think we both hinted at. I think we both internally believe that there are. Otherwise, Westboro Baptist Church wouldn't be off the table. Um, yeah. So, you know, what are those boundaries? Where does where do we where do we draw that line for ourselves? Well, I guess that's where you get into the nuance. That's just hard to do in a hypothetical. Uh, it goes back, I really think, still to that original question: Is it kingdom growing or? denominational growing. And part of when you start asking that question, you go, well, I think it builds the kingdom. Okay, how? And then when you start doing that, or how does it not? So like picking on Westboro Baptist again, just because they were the illustration that got brought up, you go, yeah, but it shows that we love each other and we can do everything and let's go cooperate in the community handing out water bottles or something. It's a hot 117 degree day. That's kingdom building, right? Well, in a sense, yes. Normally it would, but now I have the weight of the history of that particular church being brought to the table with it. And what if the amount of good, it's almost like, I hate to say it like a weight ratio scale. What if I would give 10 degrees of good in the community for passing out water with them, but they bring a minus 2,705 number with them to the table. I cannot outweigh that 
in one activity. And the problem is, is I will still go home with extra negative. Yeah. And right? that loss. Because, yep. You'll go Because now my loss. church, they're like, oh, you guys, if you did it with them, must believe the exact same yep. thing that I should go picket gay funerals. And, and when service members die, picket their funerals and say it's because of abortion or whatever. Like, I, uh, that, that's the point where you go, this isn't, this isn't kingdom, gr- this isn't outweighing stuff. There's a lot of other things that would have to happen yeah. first with Westboro Baptist well, before I would do it. And I think that's the nuance we would have to begin to weigh is what's being brought to the table in doing this and does it support or outweigh what you're trying to do? That's that's yeah. the complicated discussion you have to have. Well, I mean, I, I would struggle, I guess, yes, but also I struggle because I think there are people that already believe that about a Christian anyway. Like, oh yeah, you all you just pick at LGBTQ people and and uh like you're all like them, basically. I think there's already and that, that alludes to the branding problem. I I think there's already that sentiment out there that that to some degree we're already fighting against. But I also think I think for me, in addition to understand like there is there is strategy involved in this in wisdom. And if yeah, if a church has been, you know, really known as controversial and not out to really, you know advance the kingdom of God, then yes, probably, you know, then, sorry, then no, probably not a church that you want to work with um, because they're not trying, they're not there for the same goal that you are. And I think the, the other side of this go is what initiative are you trying to, trying to do with them? And have you already been doing that on your own? Because the other side of this is what's your reputation? What are you known for? Yeah. What is your brand? What do you bring to the table? What do you, yeah, what do you, because is that a net loss for them? But outside of that, like if you're, if you have no experience doing this, then now you're really fighting an uphill battle because if your church has never gone out and let's use the stereotypical example of like actually gone out to try and uh, serve the homeless population in your city. If your church has no idea how to do that, putting them in a position with another church to do that only hurts both parties. Like you are inexperienced, you are untrained. And outside of that, if you also haven't done any prep with your members to understand how to even interact again with people that we disagree with, then you've got an even bigger problem. So they just compound and it just makes for a recipe for disaster. So I think there is, I think there's something to be said about, yes, we should look to partner, but we should partner where, where our resources not it's not just the goal of advancing the kingdom of god but where partnering and pooling our resources would, would actually wisely advance the kingdom of god where it would be a good investment of our time energy manpower you know and 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 resources yeah. does it advance the kingdom forward or does it advance it in a direction opposite that of the enemy yes exactly and that's that, so i i do think there's that and that's where i say like for Westboro baptist church i know that you're not in it for the same reason that that we would be in it i know um and and so we can't be unified because we don't have any sort of common ground that we're trying to work from in order to accomplish our goals. Um, but outside of that, I do think that we need to be wise with resources. And if you are just doing it so that you can show the world how good of a Christian you are, I know that I talked about us being having a branding problem and needing to fight against that and resist it. Um, at the same time, if you're only doing it so that the world will see you as good, then you've also got a problem. Yeah. And, and and that also comes to another question that has to come involved in this. Can you cooperate for good without sacrificing your own personal beliefs mm. or, or morality? You know, you, you don't want to abuse yourself in the name of doing something else. That's not healthy either. 
we're going to accomplish this great good and I'm going to feel like slime for having done it because that means I have to drop this, this, this and ignore that I believe this. Which is, which is annoying because we literally do that every day at work. I mean, unless you're a pastor or like work within a denomination, but you are working alongside people that do not have the same beliefs and you're working towards a common goal. Yeah. It's a lot easier than, I, than we think to partner with people outside of our own belief systems. And I think we way overcomplicate it but I also think that because we've we've historically way overcomplicated it, we now have this mountain to climb of re re-educating people on on how to how to be cooperative and how to work with people who don't believe the same thing that we believe. And how do we how do we transition or transfer that mindset into this kind of work? But that, you know, that's just my opinion. Maybe I'm being too cynical about it. Um, but I think here's here's the reality. There was a study done several years ago, and I, I'm going to try and find it, but if it's not linked in the show notes, it's because I couldn't find it. Yeah, you still haven't told me who Marty is. Oh, my bad. Thank you for that reminder. I Yeah, I will look that up. Um, but there was a study done that basically any of the major Christian denominations in America, if any one of them, any single denomination decided to champion um, uh, adoption, and that that denomination just decided we're going to end, you know, we're going to adopt as many kids as possible. We're going to equip as many parents as possible, and and to to go through. That the, sounds like focus on the family. Tried to do that, I think, in the early two thousand. That doesn't surprise me. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like there are, there are a lot of kooks and crazies in in denominations. So ours included. Not I, that it's a crazy idea to try and end any, homelessness yeah, or, or like yeah. unadopted children or whatever, but. I mean, well, Not it is crazy end. to like it's don't end uh, adopted. Yeah. Well, this hole is fun to dig. Um, but basically, Here's a shovel. I'm doing if good. Any if any one denomination made that their primary cause for basically any amount of time, uh, they could single handedly end the orphan crisis. If the, if one denomination just within itself could unite around one singular cause, they could single handedly get every single child adopted and into, you know, hopefully a loving home. And I'm not saying that uh, that means that, that some Christian denomination do, should do it. There should be some major vetting and things that happen and like major resources are required to pull that off. But the bottom line is any one denomination could actually do it. And that's what's so wild to me because if one denomination can make that kind of impact, imagine- Look at a lot of them. Exactly. Do. That's massive. And that's the potential that we are wasting because we're so busy trying to define ourselves by what we aren't and what we don't believe. And that's what's so sad to me and tragic about this conversation is that, you know, we we end our podcast and you know, we we stop recording at some point and what happens happens, but it's on it's on the people that listen to this. It's on the people that obviously also don't listen to this to encourage cooperation and encourage unity where we can where we can find it and find ways to pool our resources, especially in a time where resources seem to be dwindling and dwindling. Well, and we struggle to do this again as so many things because of bad theology. Righteousness is not an absence of doing stuff. Righteousness is what you do. Yep. Right doing righteousness. Right. Ness, you know, you don't. I, I I don't arrive at truth by a rejection of false. I arrive at truth by an embracing of truth, mm. etc. Sometimes it's like we're close, but our perspective is upside down, and then we wonder why we miss it. Yeah, and that's that's what's so. 
it's just so tragic to me. I, I I feel like I unintentionally ended up in this kind of like somber space, but it really is tragic. And I think it's the crazies that ruin it for all of us all the time. I think it's the crazies that do. That's the quote of the podcast. Yep. Um, the crazies are ruining it for everyone else. That's the episode title. Um, but But it's true. And I would like to see an army of reasonable Christians, not a literal army, but an army, uh, but a, but a major movement <laughs> of reasonable Christians. Reason and Christianity. <laughs> oh, um, hey, Tim Keller called. Um, <laughs> he'd like to have a word with you. Uh, uh, got him. So, um, but I would love to see a movement of reasonable Christians rising up and saying, the beliefs that we have are bigger than the lines that we draw. And the amount of good mm. that we can do in the world is greater when we work together than when we work against each other. And don't and and it has to come down to don't you have a belief that if you're you're doing right, God can take care of the details. Like if you go, well, they don't believe the same way, or maybe let's pretend that you in this equation have the right understanding and the other church doesn't. Don't you think God could work that out as they begin to see you care about them and they're working with you? And I mean, you, you know, don't sacrifice what you believe, but don't don't you think that would create the environment for healthy discussion to go, well, why do you believe it differently? Well, did you know that the book we both say we agree on says it? That, I, I mean, don't you think we could get there? But we're never even going to have that where we're not even sitting in the same room. Yep. Yep. We don't even interact with them. I mean, you can't have a discussion with someone you don't see. And that you haven't taken any time to get to know because you've been wrapped up in your own echo chamber. You've been wrapped up in your own world. This is, this is the sad thing is what, what we're finding is a lot of Christians, when they finally do step out of anything, they, they, they only know one, the one language that they grew up speaking within their denomination, uh, whether that's grew up physically or grew up as a Christian. And so they, they, they forget how to just interact with people in general without that, without that, that, that faith basis um, underneath. And we only know how to talk about one thing, and that's drama within our own denomination or drama within our own church. And I've fallen into that trap. That's something that I struggled with at some point. But, well, because you always see the drama under your own roof first. Yep. But we've, we've got to grow beyond ourselves. We've got to look beyond ourselves. And just, like, when did it, when did it become so hard to just be a decent human being? And that's what's so sad to me. And why is it that I'm asking Christians to be the decent human beings? Why, like, because why do we, we are the one people in the world that signed up and said that was what we were trying to be? So we should be held accountable. Oh uh, no, I agree. Yes, it's just sad that, like, you know, we need to be held accountable when when the teachings are very, very widespread and clear on this. Um, and there are very few times that I like to say that something is clear in the Bible. But when you've got 2,100 verses in Scripture that talk about the exact same, you know, the importance of taking care of the poor, the orphan and the widow. Um, and, and, you know, just that the groups that extend that, that kind of fall under that kind of, uh, needs based umbrella, then yeah, like it, that's where I would say it's clear. Yeah. Government 2,100 verses. You only gave us 1400 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Uh, I would like, uh, well, they also gave us 600 unless you were above 70, 75 grand. That sucks. Um, well, I'm in ministry. I don't make that I know. Much. Same, uh, same here. So by the way, uh, just so you are aware, the marketing person I was right, it is Marty Newmeyer. Uh, so it's just spelled Newmeyer N-E-U. versus the old Meyer yeah. or Oscar Meyer. This is why I could picture the spelling in my head, but I was doubting myself. It's N-E-U-M-E-Y-E-R. 
I-E-R. So it's just very like Neumeyer almost. Like it's, um, and maybe it is Neumeyer, but anyway, um, complete aside there. But I, I just see so much more potential um, here. And I do think that we can accomplish some really great things if we would, uh, if we would allow ourselves the freedom to work with one another without feeling so threatened and defensive about our own beliefs. Yeah. So absolutely. Anything that you want to close us out with Henry or was that, was that the closing? I don't even know anymore what's happening at any point in time. <laughs> it's been a long day. Has it? It's only, <laughs> it's only 1152 AM and yes, I'm exhausted. Both of us have already had a lot going on today, but uh, we, we are very thankful that you decided to cooperate with us by sharing part of your day, listening to us go through this journey together as always. So I'll throw that out there. Ryan, any thoughts you want to throw out there other than what you just did? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say a good place to start with all of this is to find out what footprint your church has in the community. Um, and that looks like what connections you have as well as like what you've actually done in your community. And I think a good place to start with any of this is to actually start working and making things better in your own community and serving the people in your own community first. Um, because that will naturally draw people closer to you that want to partner with you and want to help and and want to help you succeed at what you're doing um, because everybody wins when that happens. So um, that's what I would encourage you to do if you're looking for something to just practically do with your local church and on a personal level too. Um, I think it's time to to do everything we can to remind ourselves to just be good human beings and and participate in that human experience as, as much as, as as authentically as we can. Um, I think that's really important to do. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a lizard person, um, according to Alex Jones. I'm saying that because I think it's just important to be good human beings. So, uh, well, that guy, like a lizard, uses his tongue a whole lot to spew a whole lot of stuff. Yep. And on that note, thank you, everyone, for listening to Absurdity. <laughs> Alex Jones is his own episode uh, as well down the line. But thank you, everyone, for listening. We appreciate Branding you. issue, anybody? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I, we appreciate you being on the journey with us as we try and navigate some of these issues and just figure out where we land on everything and we explore. This is a conversation for us. We, you know, we're learning about each other as we, as we have these conversations too, which is always great to be able to say when you've had a friend for, for several years that you can continue to keep learning and, and, and growing together. So... Um, you know, Henry, I just wanted to throw that appreciation out there to you. But um, to, thanks, man. You're welcome. Appreciate you too. To our listeners, thank you so much. And we will see you next week. 